0: All right, what's going on in Mongolia? Uh,
1: Yejin is a cashier for the NGO branch of our group. And so she has a couple. Your wife, Yejin? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I should specify these things. People
0: might not know who she is.
1: Right. So she's being trained to do the cashier work. It's not really a full time thing, that position, but today, the thing that she was getting taught how to do was involving processing and organizing monthly funds so the guy who's teaching it brought over a machine that we use that like automatically count counts bills and then these things to bind them in groups of a certain amount but because it's mongolian tugruks is the name of the money <laughs> tugruks. Um, the value yeah tugruks and so one dollar 2,800-something. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, obviously, if you have, like, a large amount of money, the stacks are Uh, uh, really big. Makes sense. Do they have, like, single bills? Um, The highest bill that Mongolia has is worth, I think I calculated it to, like, $7.30. Whoa.
2: What's their lowest bill?
1: The lowest bill is not even a cent. They have no coins.
2: They have no coins? Do they have, like, a one... To
1: yeah, a lot of these countries, um, w- poorer countries with huge numbers for their money, like Vietnam, Cambodia, I think Thailand, but I don't remember. You might remember that better. Um, a lot of these countries, I think it's poorer countries, but it may just be more of an Asian thing, but a lot of those don't use coins at all because the value would be just almost, not. yeah, definitely not worth making.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. So there's a bill that's won to group.
1: I think the smallest is a ten. Okay. Okay. Which is still like what would it be? Like five percent of a cent or something. Golly. <laughs> it's
0: a wild.
1: I know. So sometimes if you get change, I mean, most people are dealing with these larger bills, which are still, as I said, not that valuable. But if you do get changed for something, your wallet can get pretty bulky pretty quick with almost <laughs> you know, almost worth nothing. Yeah, but it was pretty funny because he wanted to have the denominations in the largest bills and in the second largest bills. So that would be three and a half dollars or something. So we had these big stacks that uh, I don't know what to compare it to the height. But maybe I'd say like each stack was about a foot high. But, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> And we had to divide them into <laughs> clusters of um, two or one million Tubruks at a time um, using the machine, and then like wrapping these papers around it and labeling it and then doing rubber bands, and it just felt really funny. But when he first brought it, I'm not the cashier, so I didn't know if I'm what are the rules about doing things properly. Mm-hmm. Um, he did say, you know, we need to have the door locked and don't do that kind of work with anyone else around. Um, but for me, it's okay. But I'm not really the one responsible, so I was like is it okay if I hold these and see how heavy it is? (laughs) So so then I picked up the stack and I was like, this is what it would feel like to rob a bank. (laughs) (laughs) And most, like all the bills that are really worth anything have the same person's face on it. Can you guess who?
0: Genghis Khan. (laughs) Yep.
1: Got it. (laughs) There's only one other person and he's on the small bills.
0: Who's the other guy?
1: Uh, his name is Sukhbathar. I don't know exactly what he did.
0: So today I figured we'd take a little break from the Matthew content and talk about missions, and then we'll get back into the book survey next week or whenever we record next.
2: Yeah, so as a reminder, we've been using the classes that Paul is in 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 seminary kind of as a basis for Mm -hmm. what we're talking about. He's been in two classes this spring the inductive Bible study of Matthew and missions, the basic mm-hmm. missions class called missional formation. Right. So we've been talking mostly about this inductive Bible study, but we also want to spend some time uh, talking about his missions class.
0: Right. And so, yeah, the missions content, like we've said, is less objective And even just for the sake of this conversation, I think it'd be good to focus more on our personal experiences or, or bring in our personal experiences with missions as well so we have all been on short-term mission trips um daniel has done some long-term mission work including your current situation Mm -hmm. um but i thought it'd be fun to start with what all of our first short-term mission trips were
1: so right when i was 2016 we went to southern brazil is that your
0: first time out of the country
1: other than canada yeah okay yeah and back in those days, you didn't need a passport to go to Canada. So it was my first time using a passport. Anyway, yeah, I was 16. We went a uh, group from the church. It was a really fun, great trip. Um, it was not in any official way, a youth group trip, but the youth pastor and a lot of other, of my fellow <laughs> youth members were on the trip. Yeah, I thought it
0: was, I thought it was a youth trip.
1: Maybe I'm remembering that wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was just a, whoever in the church wants to go. And it just happened that it was mostly, mostly youth members. My
0: primary memory from that trip was you all bringing back Brazilian soda and getting to try that <laughs> uh, yeah. and be excited about it. Quarana. But what did you primarily do while you were there?
1: We split into three teams, and one was doing the more typical, like I guess, with the stereotype of short-term missions, where it was more renovating type stuff. That was our smallest group, and it was like some of the older guys and randomly Chauncey, who was my age. He's the only young person who got put with these older guys. I don't know what how that happened. I felt bad for him. <laughs> and then um, the ones who were more involved with musical things. Did the going to schools and doing music and little skits and things. Mm. And then the rest of us was doing vacation Bible school for young children in that area. And we had a lot of kids show up. That's cool.
0: Cool. Was it all through a local church or how are you finding these opportunities for ministry? Uh,
1: We went with Go International.
0: Okay. So Go is a short-term sending organization.
1: Based in Wilmore, Kentucky.
0: That's right. Did they connect you with the local church? Once you got down there, or how did you find the specific places to do outreach?
1: We had a guy from Go who traveled with us, and then after we arrived in Brazil, he passed us on to another guy who was like stationed there, and I think he was a Go member or employee, or else just some like partner, who, probably. Yeah, some kind of affiliate yeah. person. Was he a Brazilian? No, but he was fluent, and you know lived there okay yeah i remember we we (laughs) kind of joked about how the first guy didn't know as much because when we were traveling down and like through the airports and everything he was all about you know be careful about the water don't drink the water don't brush your teeth with the water you know how dangerous it is and then Uh the guy who we got handed off to was like oh yeah the water's pretty much safe (laughs) (laughs) and yeah nobody got sick so it worked out but it was a really fun trip um the place where they accommodated us was like we were in a remote village, but we were staying in a sort of hotel. It wasn't a hotel, but anyway, this place where you stayed, they also provided the meals and they had a big soccer field in the middle of their campus. and They had a pool, which we didn't really use because it was their winter. So it was slightly cold for swimming. Mm-hmm. It was a really nice, relatively comfortable experience. <laughs> um,
0: That's good. That's important for a mission trip. <laughs>
1: it certainly wasn't up to American standards of, you know, like there were random power outages and there was, um, things were a little dirtier and stuff, but it was by no means yeah. like, you know, I, I've definitely, no,
0: been, <laughs> no means what I experienced on no my beliefs, first yeah. mission trip. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, and I have since, I have since been in much more, uh, <laughs> trying conditions. In yeah. Countries. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fun trip. In
0: summary, do you feel like the ministry was effective?
1: Yeah, I do think... I mean, the Vacation Bible School at least was a hit with the kids. You know, they had fun. Mm-hmm. A lot of them turned up. And from what I remember, part of the goal was getting more of the local families and local kids' awareness of the church, the little church in that area. Mm. So I guess any kind of assessment of long-term effectiveness would have had to be, you know, whether there was any retention. But yeah, with the local As far church, as what yeah. I saw of yeah the kids had a good time and they learned some bible stories and but for me the main thing i remember was the vacation bible school and thinking like oh it went well we had a lot of kids who showed up Mm -hmm. that's about all i can really assess it we had a great time and yeah i don't know if this counts as effectiveness but there definitely is that interesting very cool feeling of connecting with churches in another country in another language Mm -hmm. where you can feel the kinship with them you yep. know when you can't understand a lot of what they're going through and what they're saying So mm-hmm.
0: that's huge that's really cool that you actually felt that because i think that's one of the most important aspects of short-term missions is that encouraging local believers just by yep. that connection we have as brothers and sisters of christ in different parts of the world i mean that's what paul did a lot and his missions was just going to churches and encouraging believers
1: I feel like it's something that a lot of other churches in other countries are more aware of or take more seriously or are more appreciative of than in America. Mm. Maybe because in a lot of other countries, they're the minority. And so it's more encouraging for them to have people visit.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. All right, Joel, what you got?
2: Uh, my it's kind of a similar experience where my first mission trip was to Honduras. It was a youth Trip. Mm -hmm. The main trip was a one week trip. We were on an island just north of Honduras. And we split up into groups to do similar type things, like support at an orphanage, um, construction at a school and at a few individuals homes and church service type stuff. So kind of similar format. We were connected to this ministry that basically was started by a guy who spends like half of the year in Honduras and half the year here in the States. He like organizes groups to go down throughout the Hmm. summer and uses it as like a task force for a lot of largely like building and renovation and that kind of stuff.
0: So is it like his own nonprofit, essentially? And you guys were partnering with? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I
2: think so. So I feel like one of the positives of that was that we were like directly partnering with the guy who is trying to build those long term connections. Mm -hmm. He was the liaison. But I also I definitely feel like the primary focus was building work and that kind of stuff. So it wasn't as directly like evangelistic ministry. Not that that's a problem, but Mm -hmm. that's where the focus was. Um, Then I stayed two weeks later after the youth group left and went to the mainland of Honduras and worked at a hospital and children's home called Loma de Luz that you, Paul, have been to before. I have. Uh, It's a a lot of missionaries from Cornerstone International, which we have connections with. Mm -hmm. So me and one other guy from the church were working there for the next two weeks, and I primarily... (laughs) <laughs> dug, <laughs> dug holes. No, um,
1: <laughs> I, like,
2: <laughs> I worked out in the jungle a lot of times by myself. Sometimes with other people, like digging a trail, making a trail for the water line to supply water to the hospital, so that they could have like increased water pressure for their procedures.
1: So a trench for a pipe
2: basically yeah wow. basically and and there needed to be enough of a pathway for service also so, so you it, were
1: hacking down jungle brush yes and,
2: and digging into dirt to try to make it like a <laughs> the goal was to get like a like a gradual decline from like the springs up in the mountains like down to the hospital so that it was like a, they could have oh, it was of, like an aqueduct yeah kind of but it was just through mostly through the ground but it was there were some places where I had to like clip it up to the side of the wall, and like with a rebar and stuff like that. Wow.
0: That's actually pretty cool. Uh, I was, I've been listening to a biography about David Livingston. And one of the things he would do sometimes when he would go into remote African villages is do irrigation for them to be able to get water into the village and help their uh, farms. And, you know, they all thought it was like a miracle and amazing. And that's one of the ways that he was able to open doors for the gospel. But anyway, that's just kind of cool that you're doing something similar.
2: Yeah, it was hard work. The first day I was out there, I was by myself and mostly working with a pickaxe, like going through rock. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and wow. I've never I don't think I've ever even held a pickaxe.
2: <laughs> and I was like I was by myself all day that day doing it. And so I was like getting blisters on my hands because I didn't have gloves that day. And so I like took off my shirt and used it to like wrap the pickaxe with, you know, while I was hammering through. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> brutal. <laughs> but it was, it was good. And then I would mostly work um, probably until like three or four sometime like that. And then the evenings we would just, me and the other guy from our church would kind of just hang out or talk to some of the other missionaries or play soccer with the local people, that kind of thing. So it was, it was really fun.
0: That's cool. That was for the, you were doing that for the missions hospital there, right? That's right. Do you feel like that was effective? Was that helpful?
2: (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Um, I mean, somebody, I guess somebody had to do it. I, I, I was working directly with the main doctor for a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, where I was digging mostly was like right behind his house. So like the first day he like showed me how to weld some of these like rebar pieces to use for clips. And like, he was Mm -hmm. out there welding and then I, I mean, he was the main doctor. So then he would go in and do procedures and everything. Mm -hmm. And so if I was able to take any sort of work off of him, he's doing a ton. So I think that's totally worth it.
1: I didn't know you learned how to weld. That's pretty cool.
2: Well, I didn't really do much of the welding, but I kind of helped him while he did the main welding stuff. Cool. And some days he would come out and work in the jungles with me.
1: Hmm. So. That was a treat for you to have company.
2: Yes. Most of the days I wasn't by myself. Oh, okay. Most of the days there were some other people working, um, but there were a few days I was I was alone.
0: Did you come across any creatures in the jungle?
2: I think I remember there were monkeys.
0: The howler monkeys.
2: I don't remember, but they were like far okay. away that like somebody was like, hey, there's monkeys, but I like couldn't really get close to them or anything like that.
0: When Riley and I were at Loma Delos in Honduras, uh, we woke up before sunrise one day to kind of hike up the mountain and get on top of their water tower and get some shots of the sunrise, do a time lapse. So anyway, we're walking up the road up this mountain and it's still dark outside and we just hear this. oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like a you know Sasquatch, just crazy, crazy noise. Uh, but sure enough, it's those howler monkeys, and they are—it is a wild sound.
1: Yeah. Well, my favorite story I remember you telling about that trip was the mango tree. What about the mango tree? Everyone would eat under the mango tree and then have to cover their heads because they were afraid of getting hit by mangoes.
2: (laughs) What? Yeah, they were good mangoes too. But when the wind, when there was a hard wind or anything, people were you were definitely like afraid that a mango would fall on your head. Everyone would cover their heads. (laughs) <laughs> it makes you wonder really like knows. why were they under it uh, probably for the shade it was a, i mean the mango tree is gigantic yeah like this massive massive like party tree image where it's like the only big tree in the middle of this big kind of field area so that's where they kind of were stationed when we were doing some sort of out- outdoor gathering and eating did Did you see any mangoes fall on the food or hit people or anything like that no they some of them fell but i don't remember any in- impact oh.
0: <laughs> Those Central American mangoes are next level. Like, I always like mangoes, but those are incredible. And not just Central American, like, Southeast Asian ones are good. Any of those tropical countries, oh, so good.
1: Yeah, in Cambodia, they don't let them get ripe.
0: Oh, they eat them green.
1: They like them green and sour with, like, chili powder on it. So it's sour and spicy Mm. and hard.
0: Yeah, they did that in Belize, too.
2: I always wonder places that eat, like, bananas and other fruit, like, green. Mm if they actually prefer it that way or if they're just like there's that competition or they've grown up with like a competition to get Mm -hmm. them before other people kind of. And so they wait and
1: someone else is going to get it.
2: Right. Yeah. I've always kind of wondered if that, how that works out.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Cause especially
2: like if like a long time ago, that may have been a factor that got them like used to eating them this way. You know, and so then it may be just over the years, they've always eaten it this way because if you had waited back, I don't know, hundreds of years ago, other people would get them before you.
1: It could be that <laughs> what we consider ripe in their mind just tastes like it's already rotting. But the part that doesn't make sense about that is a lot of those countries are way into sugary stuff, you know, so it's not like they they don't like sweet things. Right. Well, don't they do
0: both? Don't they eat it both ways?
1: It may be a preference thing. Yeah. All right. What about you, Paul? Let's hear about Belize. Yeah, what was your first mission trip? Was it effective?
0: <laughs> I went on a youth group trip to Belize when I was in high school. Belize, just south of Mexico, northeast of Guatemala. It's a small country. And we, I believe, were partnered with some type of uh, missions organization but i do not think it was very well structured i'll start off with that so we were staying in this small church it's like a one room church and just tile floors and so our whole group was staying in there and just sleeping on the floor a little bit uncomfortable but still good so we were also doing mostly construction and then also some work with kids but uh I just remember the construction feeling like it was not very effective. And like we may have not been the most qualified (laughs) contractors for this project. (laughs) So you got, you know, like 20 or 30 high school students trying to start on the foundation of a building. (laughs) And uh, the first thing they told us to do was to dig holes for the foundation. So we all start digging and the soil there was so... There was so much clay. If you got a a shovel full of dirt, it would all just stick to the shovel. <laughs> um, so you couldn't go for a second one because it was already full of dirt. So we kind of devised this system where one student would dig with the shovel, another student would be on their knees next to them with a rock to scrape <laughs> off the clay, and then they'd go for the second scoop of dirt. So we did this all day. And had probably less than a foot all the way around deep of what was supposed to be the foundation of this new building that we needed to be like four feet deep. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So I just remember after that first day, I was like, this is very ineffective, highly ineffective for us to be doing this work. And we're walking back to the church where we were staying and there's a guy with like a giant excavator machine. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody talked to that guy and sure enough, we show up the second day and the whole thing is dug. (laughs) The whole, everything's been dug with the machine.
1: It's like, why are we doing this? Oh my God. So what did you do after that? Cause then your, you know, week's worth of work was finished.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the way it worked is you filled those holes with, rebar structure because they do everything with rebar and concrete pretty much is how they do construction so a lot of cutting of rebar with a saw which would take three to five minutes to cut every piece and then a lot of putting rocks they wanted to fill the bottom of the foundation with rock we drove in the back of pickup trucks over to like a rocky area and used pickaxes and broke off a bunch of rock pieces and took them all back and filled the holes with rocks so anyway It's a lot of work. It was, in my opinion, not super effective for teenagers to be doing it.
2: So the story about you guys digging and then everything being done with a machine the next day. Yeah. I almost used that as an illustration in my last sermon about trying to live a holy life without the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was on my list. I used another illustration that, w- that worked, but that was like, if I needed another story, I was going to use that one.
0: That's good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've heard that story a couple times from another member of that trip who just <laughs> really uh, is salty about it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. to me, it's kind of a it's a classic case of one of the big criticisms of short-term missions, which is often it's better for the locals to do the work, And then it it not only is it more effective, but it employs local people. Uh, So I think in this case, that would have been better. However, a big aspect of short term trips, like it or hate it, is just to have an effect on the students and have an effect on the people that go Mm -hmm. and to expose people to other believers, other countries, all that.
1: Yeah, I think also a lot of times the, the construction angle has this hopefully unintentional assumption that like the local people don't know how to do anything and that we know how to do it better (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay it's one thing if you're if you're building a team of people who do that kind of work professionally or even as a hobby right versus here's a bunch of random people who've never done this and we're gonna come and do it because these people can't
0: (laughs) right yeah i don't know teenagers that don't know how to hold a hammer and then there's these like qualified craftsmen sitting there with their excavators you
1: can it doesn't even have to be that way too like i remember an instance of a very small team we'll say who went to a first world country with yeah very low uh rates of christianity and their thing they were gonna do was like skits and songs and stuff but there were only four or five of them and they weren't they were just normal people who would like practice a few things but it's not like in that country there's not people who professionally do that kind of thing and, mm-hmm. you know that's that can be another version of it's like considering before you go what you have to offer yeah exactly
0: it's one thing if you put together a team of people that were construction in the u.s right. to go do help for a nonprofit somewhere. Or like a medical missions trip is a great example of really effective short-term missions. Um yeah, so anyway, we were staying at this little church and we did do some like services where they kind of used us being there as an attraction for locals to come to the church. And I think hope I hope that had some positive effects. Come see
2: the Americans. <laughs>
0: Gosh. Step
2: right up.
0: <laughs> I remember this Jamaican guy walked up to us one day. We were just hanging out. He's like, hey, can you help me with my TV remote? I was like, what? He's like, my TV remote. It's not working. I, 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 I have no idea. Like, <laughs> figured he'd ask the white people because we would know about TVs. Anyway. Um, so yeah, we're staying at this church and we, we did some stuff with like the local kids too. So hopefully that was good. One of my favorite stories though. So like all of us guys and girls are staying in this one room church. So when we were changing to get ready for bed at night, all the guys would go outside, girls would stay inside, and then we would switch to change for bed. But uh, later on in the trip, we're just tired and like not caring anymore. So most of us guys would just take our clothes outside and just change outside. But we had a, one of the adult leaders was a little more shy about it, I guess. So I remember him like going behind one of the buildings, kind of like in the dark alley to change. And getting mugged.
1: <laughs>
0: no, no, no muggings, no muggings. Um, That's good. So he goes back there and then we just hear a high pitched shriek. <laughs> And this woman comes, like, running out of the alley. And uh, sure enough, like, one of the women of the church was back there preparing food for the next day's breakfast. So we're just out there, like, changing in plain sight. Nobody notices us. And then this one guy goes back to try to hide. And that's where the woman of the
1: church is. Oh, my gosh.
0: So anyway, all that to say, I don't think it was a very effective trip ministry-wise conditions were very difficult probably more difficult than they needed to be but hopefully we did get some exposure to another culture and so hopefully there was some good that came out of that but uh yeah not the best short-term missions experience
2: in general that's hard to like, the effectiveness of short-term missions is definitely a, something that people debate. Yes. I mean, Daniel, you've been in on both sides of that. You've been in long-term when you've, like, had short-term people coming mm. through. But then you've also been a part of short-term mission trips and long-term
1: mission trips.
0: Daniel worked in Japan doing tsunami relief for Samaritan Spurs, and so he was leading short-term teams that would come.
1: Yeah, I was, like, the... Well, one of the contact people who would lead the short-term people. I think it really does... Um, You have to have it on both sides. The people going need to have the right mindset, need to know sort of what they're bringing to the table, but also the group inviting or the people hosting, they need to have a good sense of how to use short-term people in an effective manner. Yeah. And yeah, even if you do have one side, I mean, maybe if you have a group that is able to take a lot of initiative, but generally that's going to be pretty hard without someone who understands the culture and even the region, Mm -hmm. you know, like where, how to get the word out and stuff like that. So you definitely have to have it on both sides. Um, Mm -hmm. for something like disaster relief, that makes it a lot easier. As long as you have longer term people who can train the short term people, what they can do that will be helpful. Mm -hmm. unless you are with the people who stay behind it's always going to be hard to fully assess um, what the effectiveness was but there's so much about any kind of ministry Mm -hmm. and evangelistic work that you have to have an element of faith or of leaving it up to the holy spirit to cultivate those seeds
0: right and this is really what i wanted to chat about from the class is kind of this idea of what How do we do effective missions? And uh, definitely there's a lot of debate about short term. Mm -hmm. There's been for many, many years. I mean, it started out as, should we even be doing short term trips at all? Now they're kind of here. So the question is more, okay, they're here. It doesn't seem like they're going anywhere. (laughs) Except COVID maybe (laughs) shorten some of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Who knows what's going to happen now?
0: Yeah, but the conversation, at least before COVID, was more, how do we make this effective since there, it seems how like short-term them? trips are here to stay? But I would say, just in context of this conversation, a lot of these discussions, too, are about long-term trips. So just how, as Westerners, can we be effective in missions? There have been a lot of complaints over the years about missionaries and the way missions has been conducted in certain instances there's been a ton of good but then there's also been some negative you know you hear the complaint a lot about people going and trying to turn people into westerners and disrupting cultures that's a common complaint
1: yeah i think that takes a lot of Mm -hmm. honest introspection on the part of the missionary and probably close relationship with native people hopefully a christian native person but even if not because it can be hard to disentangle cultural norms and real moral standards like Mm. kingdom culture right right yeah and that can go both ways like you can have people who definitely you have that problem and i think some of the early missions stuff at least coming out of england and the english-speaking countries i'm sure there are exceptions and even those people did have fruit and everything but I think in the past, there did tend to be a little bit of the, oh, you need to sing like these types of hymns, and when you go to church, you need to wear a tie, and doing that kind of thing, mm-hmm. right um, the Western culture. Mm-hmm. But you could have the other side where there's a little bit too much tolerance for cultural norms that maybe should be challenged from a Christian perspective. yeah. So obviously like missions is a huge part of the Christian
2: faith since the beginning that we've been called to be missionaries, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of debate about how do we do missions in an effective way and what does effective missions look like? One of the big criticisms is, are you bringing Christianity or are you just bringing your own culture? And there's definitely been times throughout history where people coming as Christians have brought in cultural changes that aren't really necessary Mm -hmm. for the gospel. And so there's Questions about when is that helpful.
1: And those can also increase the barrier or cost of entry in a way that it makes it harder for people to accept because there's these additional cultural abnormalities. Mm -hmm. Right. Requirements.
0: A great example, and where it all started, is with the Council of Jerusalem and Acts and this idea in the early church, do Gentile converts have to become Jews um, do they have to practice mm-hmm. Jewish customs, Jewish festivals, circumcision? So we get that model and Acts.
2: And I think if you're involved in discussions about missions, it can go too far on either direction for sure. I think a lot of the current conversations have gone too far saying where like cultural changes are bad. And some of the cultural changes that may not even be necessary for the gospel are still positive mm-hmm. changes. Like when you bring a well to a city... That's going to change the culture because they're not having to travel to get water anymore. And like, who knows what kind of effect that's going to have on the actual culture. But that's still positive for the people, you know. And so there are positive cultural changes. And Christianity has brought a ton when you talk Mm -hmm. about hospitals and schools and all these things. Those are gigantic cultural changes that are not essential to become Mm -hmm. Christian, you know. But there's still positive cultural changes. So just because you're changing culture doesn't mean it's
1: bad. Yeah. That criticism is not only recent, it may be more more widespread, but I was pretty surprised to see how long that has been going on, this sort of indignation at trying to change indigenous people in any way. Because I was reading the story of these missionaries to parts of Tibet. It was anyway, you know, the Himalayan areas and very remote primitive people and they they were shepherds and mountain people and they didn't have a written form for their language and so these missionaries were bringing in writing they were bringing in sanitation standards about how you should clean like this teaching some medical things and not assuming that like everything is spirits, they can't be controlled. And, the, and they were getting criticism for, you know, evangelizing and soiling an untapped society, basically. And that was mm. back in the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. that kind of wow. maybe more the 70s. But I was surprised that those kinds of criticisms were being levied against them even back in those days.
2: And it is a legitimate, it is definitely legitimate to think about. I mean, like you said earlier, Daniel, the introspection that it takes Mm -hmm. is really important. I mean, we do need to be aware of the cultural biases that we come with. And is that something like what is kingdom culture and what is American culture? And kind of knowing that, um, I mean, the Muslim world often says that we're trying to do that with women's rights and stuff, Mm. That that's not necessarily like a human's rights thing in general or a Christian culture thing. That's a Western culture thing. And so those are legitimate questions for yeah. us to consider.
0: So for my missional formation class, we had a choice between three books to read and then do a report on them. And so I chose one called Western Christians and Global Missions. What's the role of the North American church? But I chose this one because I wanted to look at this question of what should we as the American church be doing in missions? How can we be helping? How can we be making a difference? So I wanted to go through some of these things he talks about in this book and just get your thoughts and feedback on them. So in this book, he starts by just talking about the state of the world now, just some of the aspects about what is going on in our world. So the first thing and... Probably most important thing about where our world is right now is what he calls the great transition, um, which is this movement of the epicenter of Christianity being in the West to being in the South and East, Mm
2: -hmm. which I've heard people talking about basically my whole life, but I still assume we're in that transition. Is that in terms purely of population or does that have to do with influence or both?
0: I think percentage of Christians.
2: Where is Christianity growing? And as far as influence goes, I would say the growing influence of Christianity in those areas, Mm -hmm. right? So like Christianity is more and more influencing Africa and some Eastern countries, and it's not like having a vastly growing influence in the West.
0: Yeah. So one of the things he said is they think that by 2025, Africa will be the most Christian continent in the world by, yeah, percentage of Christians. That's cool.
1: That's pretty soon.
0: Yeah, it's quite soon. In fact, it might already be because this, I think this book was written a bit ago. Um, One thing I thought was interesting, he says, if you want to imagine a typical Christian in the world, think of a poor woman in the slums of Sao Paulo, Brazil, or a village in Nigeria. Uh, Do you guys feel like you're pretty aware of that transition? It sounded like you said you were.
2: Yeah, I've heard people talking about that for a long Mm -hmm. time. And that kind of. Movement of Christianity. When you talk about Christian history, people talk about the way that Christianity has moved across mm-hmm. the globe and kind of how that's going on now. So you see Christianity starting in Jerusalem, moving, um, even though it went every direction from Jerusalem. Kind of the force of Christianity moved toward Rome, the center of the world, and then from there more into Europe and then over to mm-hmm. Americas. And so people talk about the where has the focal point of Christianity been throughout? The yeah, two thousand years, and so people are talking about it moving back around. And there's there's a um, kind of theory that it's going to move back around through the Muslim countries
0: and back mm-hmm. to Jerusalem. It's interesting.
1: My awareness of it would have come more from hearing for many years how, by population, the church grows faster in China than anywhere else, despite it being persecuted.
0: Yep. So yeah, China is a huge one. India, uh, India a lot of growth there. Africa is the most growth by continent, and then more recently we've been seeing a lot of Middle Eastern growth as well. I think that's good for Christians to be aware of, and especially as America gets more secular, I think it's encouraging to know that the church is growing despite what you might feel like you see in the culture around you. It's just not always here. Second kind of state of the world thing he talks about is what he calls the Great Migration. And here he's essentially just saying that more than really ever in history, people are moving from country to country. Just immigration overall is higher than it's ever been. And so that has some really interesting implications.
1: Yeah closely related to that is an increase in these international moves being more temporal because mm-hmm. it, just as it's easier to go places and to move places and to live in other countries and still be in touch with all your people back home or with anyone anywhere mm-hmm. uh, so also it's easy to move again after having been there for a couple of years whereas in the past it was a huge step to go but also once you went you pretty much were going to settle there unless something extreme happened, and now you have a mm-hmm. lot more of the midterm missionaries, where they're long term on a temporary
2: basis. Mm-hmm. So I guess that migration effect, like, how does that affect missions? I guess there's more diversity within cultures probably because people are moving yeah. in and out of different cultural populations. Yes. So that's probably part of it. I don't. What other are there any other effects that you guys are aware of?
0: One thing that we talked about in our class is a lot of the Christian growth in Europe today, in Western Europe, is actually from immigrants. So it's Christians moving in to the countries and bringing Christianity. Um, So that's encouraging. And then I'd say the other thing is we have so much diversity in America that in a lot of ways the mission field has come to us. So here in Kentucky, we have a lot of people from Islamic cultures coming to study at UK. So because of that, there's been neat opportunities for outreach to Muslims right here in Kentucky. So I think there are some interesting implications on both sides when it comes to this increase in migration. And I'd say most of us, if we even just think about the neighborhoods we live in, we can probably think of some people that have like foreigners that are right around us. This is true. More so than when we were growing up, even, I feel like.
1: I think you're right. Um, I also do think, as a child, you're not going to be as keyed into that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. In my case, I'm the, I'm one of the foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right.
0: The only other thing I'll say about the current state of the world is what he calls the Great Divide. He talks in the book about two divides. One is economic divide, which essentially is first world countries are getting richer. And so there's a growing divide between poverty and wealth.
1: I think part of that may be that the growth of technology has made it so that people who make a moderate amount are able to get a lot of the same things that the rich people Basically, no matter how rich you are, if you have a smartphone and a computer with internet, those kinds of things, then that's something in common with lower class, top, and even the rich people are still going to be having access to some of the same things. Obviously, the rich people are going to be doing more like vacations and traveling and doing more hands-on stuff, but when it comes to the accessibility to the same type of movies or games or online communities... I think that levels it a little bit.
0: The other divide is, he describes as a theological divide. I'd say there's a few different facets to this. One is just we tend to have a lot of theological training and teaching in the states um, where there's less of that in some of these developing nations. The other thing is just a dependence on the Holy Spirit in um, a lot of the more impoverished nations that we just don't really have in the in the West.
1: Why would that be?
2: I think it goes along with a lot of the Bible's teachings on like how riches make mm-hmm. it difficult to have faith and you can rely on yourself for so much and even when it comes to like church activity or Christian activity like we have so many resources we can appeal to rather than just having to rely on like What's the Holy Spirit going to lead? Yeah, that's
1: true. You can always appeal to the members to raise money or something. Mm -hmm.
0: Here's a kind of a cool story from the book. He says, on my first visit to Nigeria, a young man was assigned to carry my briefcase. We got to talking one day and I said to him, Robert, how did you become a Christian? He replied, oh, Brother John over there raised me from the dead. (laughs) After recovering from my surprise, I asked him, why do my Nigerian friends see more miracles than we do in the United States? You have more doctors, he replied matter-of-factly. If God doesn't heal us, we die. You just have more doctors. God heals you one way and heals us another way. I'm all about that. So I think that's a cool story, just emphasizing kind of the need and dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's good. So, uh, at least in my experience, in a, in a lot of these countries, they're more what we would call charismatic in that regard, but not always.
2: No, I think I think it definitely goes along with the biblical teachings on the like dangers of wealth and riches. Like you see that from a cultural level, I know in the Bible it's talking more individually and how difficult that makes it to like have faith in Jesus. But like that effect on a whole culture, I think is applicable. That as a as a culture, when you can rely on yourself, you don't see your need. I mean, often in America, you're having to convince people of the need that they have for God and for a savior. That's kind of crazy that where people, many people, are at the point where they just don't see any sort of need for God, and that's. Mm-hmm like one of the detriments of being so wealthy. Right. Yep.
1: Yeah, the exact same problem in Japan, too, where they coupled with such low crime rates. So they lead pretty safe and comfortable lives. And, I mean, it's easy for them to just think, I should go with the default. That's works for everybody.
0: Yeah, and even in the States, you have a decent amount of people that are what we would call cessationists. So they believe that the acts of the Holy Spirit, the way we saw them in the early church, have ceased. And uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't work the same way he did in the Bible.
2: There's a lot more people who are not, like, they're not theologically cessationists, but they're practically cessationists, meaning hmm. they'll they'll right. say they still believe in miracles and the works of the Holy Spirit, but there's no practice of that sort of thing in their life. And it, if somebody tries to practice those things, they feel pretty uncomfortable with it.
1: And I can kind of relate to that, though, because maybe it's just because of the Western context, but often when you do see people trying to lean into that side of things, it can come across as a little bit hmm, like a power fantasy, you know, that they are kind of, I'm sure the intention is usually good, but sometimes it feels like, I don't know, something's off with it. Yeah, that's hard. That's going to be hard to find. I don't really know what I'm saying. No,
2: I understand. It. I understand what you're trying to say, but it's difficult to put into words.
0: Yeah, I think it's. it would be pretty hard to be a cessationist in the majority world church, especially in a healthy church, say in persecuted China. Just because of the state you're in, they have to be very dependent on the Holy Spirit and they see God work in so many powerful ways that, yeah, we just often don't see in the, in the same way here in the West.
2: Yesterday we had uh, an event with our youth group and we were doing some like small group questions. And one of our adult leaders was talking about how much he would love to be able to see healings and that sort of thing take place more Mm -hmm. often when people pray. And he was like, he asked me like, have you ever seen somebody get healed that somebody's prayed for? And he, and I said, have you? And he said, no, I was like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of crazy. Like somebody who's been a Christian feels like they have never seen somebody get healed. Yeah. And so I get, I mean, I recall a story of like a boy who'd been born at our church and he was basically supposed to be blind or not able to see well because he was missing like certain elements in his eye. Like they weren't there. And like we prayed for him at the church and those things were restored and he's able to see. And it's like the doctor said like these these pieces of the eye are not supposed mm-hmm. to like regenerate, mm-hmm. and so it seemed like pretty clearly miraculous healing. Yeah, and so I shared that with them, and they were like, you know, ex- excited about it. But it's kind of I I can imagine Christians in many places of the world would be like flabbergasted that somebody who's followed the Lord for like twenty years would say they've never seen a healing.
0: Absolutely, yeah. We just in my small group on Friday, one of the couples shared about. Shoulder injury she had, where essentially they said there's nothing more outside of surgery that you can do to repair that muscle, and she had someone pray over her and went back, and the physical therapist was amazed because the muscle had been regrowing. So it it definitely still happens, and it still happens here. But you're right, it's much more rare, and there are a lot of Christians that have never seen it. And I think that goes back to. I think that goes back to a lot of the resources we have. Like when we have a headache, we get an aspirin. When we have a cold, we get the NyQuil. And when we feel bad, we go to the doctor. And most of us, our first response is not to pray, uh, which in many of these other countries.
1: Yeah. If your car breaks down, we usually call somebody instead of, you know, starting. Yeah. praying. For- <laughs> <laughs> and we should.
2: Right. Like how foolish would it be to have a headache mm-hmm. and to be like, I'm not taking medicine. I'm just going to pray. Like that's stupid because the Lord has provided these things and yeah and
1: like we we do have those
2: resources.
1: It makes me think too of C.S. Lewis's miracles where he talks about the way that miracles are executed. A lot of times, it's not a complete disruption or suspension of the physical world and the laws of physics that God has set down, but it's more like an interjection. Something gets put in and then. The example I remember him specifically using is like the loaves and the fish from the story of Jesus feeding the crowd. You know, once they, they multiplied enough to feed everybody, but the it's not like each person took home fish and bread that never finished or they kept multiplying, or that they could break it and it kept going. Once it was there it behaved as a regular piece of fish or a regular piece of bread. Even in these miraculous things, a lot of, they take on attributes of the physical world. And so I think a lot of healings, too, it, it can be that line of, well, it corresponds with we were praying for this and it worked out, but there is a medical explanation. Not, not always, but a lot of times I think mm-hmm. there is. And so then it can be. Up to interpretation, are we going to say that this was just going to happen and his luck? Or are we going to say mm-hmm. that God worked it out for it to happen by natural courses, by doctors' actions? Mm-hmm. It can, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not all black and white.
0: Yeah. Just like in yeah. the story yeah. I read from the book, the guy said, God heals you one way and heals us another. Mm-hmm. And I do think there's truth to that. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could, i also go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> that was
1: good um, I have another long story about that <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do have some other questions yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. about missions that I feel like we could bring up and they could be you know long topics so we probably mm. need to go back and uh, talk more about some of your missions missions content.
1: Well, I also wonder how much of what we're talking about um is really related to the content of your class. Because I feel like we've been kind of jumping off on things and going into just our own ideas. Right,
0: right. Yeah. So what I would like to do is to look over the strengths and weaknesses of the North American church that he provides. And to me that is pretty helpful in kind of analyzing what our role today should be in the global missions movement. Um but we should probably wait until next time, don't you think, to get into that? Oh, we got Malachi. Perfect.
1: Uh-oh.
0: Malachi,
1: what's wrong?
0: He's sad
1: or hurt or something.
0: Aw. Okay, uh, there's a couple things I think we should say to wrap this up, but I guess we can just do it with the two of us. That's okay. All right. Send me your audio. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
1: Oh, that was pretty
0: bad. Yeah, poor thing. He's almost never like that, I feel like. Um, Next episode, we'll be going back to our book as a whole survey and continue to touch on that and go through, yeah, the inductive Bible study process. And next next time, we will be getting more into missions again.
1: So if you are a listener who is only interested in one of the topics, we're <laughs> no. about, you can just skip every other episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> and then go back, and it's like you have a whole new podcast to listen to. Our even-numbered episodes. There we go. You heard it here first. Oh man, wow, if I should say that.